Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to David Davis about his book, Wheels of Courage, How Paralyzed Veterans from World War II Invented Wheelchair Sports, Fought for Disability Rights, and Inspired a Nation. David's work has appeared in Sports Illustrated, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. This is David's fourth book. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. Really appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you on. I wonder if you could start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I was born and raised in New York City. Uh, I was uh, in a household without a television for my entire life. So always been a big reader uh, and went to school in New York, went to college in upstate New York. and. After, uh, I guess my college graduation present was a couple of tickets to the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984. And that sort of piqued my curiosity about the West Coast. And I ended up moving here in 1986. And I've been here ever since. Um, I got into journalism in college, actually in high school and then college. Um, and then when I moved out here to Los Angeles, I started interning at the LA Weekly, which was uh, the you know big alternative newspaper out here. I, I was lucky. I, I had some really good mentors and eventually became an editor and a writer. And that's how I sort of got my start as a, as a writer. Um, and then I left the paper in the late 90s to go freelance and try to write books. And Took a while, but eventually st- sort of got into got into the books. Found an agent who was willing to support me, and um, have started to write books ever since uh, the two thousands, I guess. And uh, yeah, hope I can uh, hope I can keep going to write the next book and be on your show in a few years. <laughs> well, that would be that would be great. Um, two, I have to. Two follow-ups to that. One, what an awesome graduation gift! Oh. Uh, tickets to the to the LA Olympics. I mean that that's that's fantastic. Totally. I don't even remember what my parents got me as a graduation gift, so it definitely wasn't as good as that. <laughs> <laughs> and, totally. And, totally. A, and a follow-up question: Do you currently have a television in your home? <laughs> yes, but it's uh, we cut the cable, we cut the cord. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, we have a television, but uh, it, it, it's pretty uh, not. We don't list, you know. We're not watching the daily news shows, etc., which which might uh, might explain why I'm able to sit down and actually write a book these days. Right. <laughs> um, before we jump into the book, I, I wanted to ask you. You mentioned you had some great mentors over the years. Is 
Is there one person in particular who, who you would say taught you the most about writing? It could be a teacher, a parent, a mentor, another author. Yeah, geez, a, a lot, a, a lot of people to think about on that question. Um, it, actually, in high school, um, I, I, we had a, uh, um, uh, you had to pass a certain. It wasn't even a class; it was just a a um, an exam, I guess, a writing exam, and. I actually failed the test. Uh, I, I I sort of panicked and I failed the test and I sort of had to go to basic writing. Um, you know, I take a you know I had to take a class in sort of basic writing with a with a gentleman named Doctor Stone, and boy, that helped me a lot. Um, I, I was sort of all over the place before that, and that really centered me as a writer. And you know, keep it simple, stupid. You know. Uh, get get through the sentence, you know, in with clarity. Um, I'm, I'm not a, as as those of you who, who might know my work. I'm not fancy or literary flourishes, etc. I'm, I'm pretty meat and potatoes. Um, you know, start the sentence, end the sentence, and move on. Um, and that that helped me a lot. Um, and and then afterwards at the newspaper, I did have some great editors. My my. My first editor there was Kit Rackless, um, who's sort of uh, just been a, a, a great advisor to me o- over the years. But also we had great copy editors and proofreaders, I mean, which is, you know, sort of a lost art these days, right? Uh, but really, we had a really, and, and, and all around me at, at the paper, I, I was, you know, low man on the totem pole and probably still am, but in terms of the writers who were there and the thinkers uh, you know, Steve Erickson, Michael Ventura, John Powers, Manola Dargis, all Judith Lewis, Linnell George, Ruben Martinez, Tom Carson, uh, and I'm leaving out some, but you know, just people who value the written word and and um, and ideas. Um, I, you know, we were a, we were a true alternative newspaper back in the day. And we approached sports differently. I think there were only two of us at the time, the Village Voice and the LA Weekly, that looked at sports a little differently. We didn't care about, you know, really who won the game. It was what did what did it mean? Um, what were the interesting stories out there? Um, and, and what were the stories that the mainstream press just did not see or did not bother to cover? Whether it was women's sports or uh, uh, obscure sports that nobody had had really taken a mind to. So that's sort of my background. And then in terms of reading, gosh, I, I I read everything and anything. Obviously, the old Sports Illustrated days, the feature writers back then, you know, from Frank DeFord to Gary Smith and and, and onward, and, but also just some of the great writers. I, I guess you know the AJ Lieblings and so forth. Um, uh, David Halberstam, people like that, who you can just you you get immersed in their words and their vision and their and and what they're presenting to you. And I mean, all I can say is I'm I'm sending out some big names. I, I I'm not putting myself in that company, but it's certainly <laughs> an ins- an inspiration and something to aspire to. Sure. Um. So I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about um. 
the prognosis and the type of care that paralyzed people received, say, prior to World War II? Before World War II, it, there, it was very crude. It was really not even treatment. Basically, the physicians, uh, so to speak, threw up their hands and said, there's nothing we can do. Um, they dubbed people with paraplegia as dead-enders, no-hopers. And the reason for that is uh, what back then, before World War II, before the 30s, really, um, if, if you were paralyzed in, let's say, a mining accident or World War I, um, it wasn't so much the injury itself that was fatal. It was the disease, the sepsis that would seep into the body, um, the, the liver, the, the urinary tract, bed sores, and Oftentimes, the, the, the statistic that I saw, and there were very few statistics because few people lived, uh, survived this. Uh, in World War II, they basically said about 90% were dead in about 18 months. And the treatment in the hospitals were, you know, they would put these men or women as well, you know, in a full length plaster body cast. In other words, immobilize them. Uh, there was no sense of, hey, let's get them up and moving after a certain point because they were going to die, right? There was no penicillin, and, and that's really the game changer. When we come to penicillin and sulfa drugs in the 1930s, because now you've got something that can combat the disease, combat bacteria, that sort of thing. And so when you come to World War II, you have those weapons at your disposal. It, you know, if you're a surgeon, if you're a medic, um, and the, the veterans I write about, um, you know, who were wounded on the battlefield, you know, if a, a medic got to them, could put some sulfa right away to, to help them, uh, you know, staunch and then staunch the bleeding. They, they would bring the wounded to uh, surgical theaters that were right behind the battlefield. So you had instant care. Um, I, I, I wrote about a veteran, Gene uh, uh, Fessenmeyer, who was wounded on Okinawa. I mean, there were hospital ships right off, you know, in the water, right there in the Pacific, ready to take him and to give him care. Um, it still was touch and go. It, it still was fraught with peril. Uh, you know, Gene came back to the States. He weighed about 70 pounds. And uh, he told me that in the hospital ward that he first was in, uh, they were taking bets as to whether he would live out the night or or would it, or whether he would die. Um, so, so the the game changer was penicillin and sulfa drugs and and the and the expertise and innovation of the doctors once the men were home in the VA hospitals, where they looked around and said, "Okay, we're not going to put you in plaster casts. We're going to get you up. We're going to start getting." exercise and move around and get your strength in your upper body so that you can support yourself, um, you know, getting to a wheelchair, getting out of bed, et cetera. And, you know, you talk in the book some about um, the perception of uh, paraplegic people at that time in the United States. Um, there's even an anecdote, which I found quite jarring about, uh, what were called, quote, the ugly laws um, 
that existed throughout the country. Uh, can you talk a little bit about about those laws specifically and and how uh, paraplegic people were perceived in society? Yeah, and that was something I I had absolutely no idea about uh, going into the research. And there were a lot of things, a lot of subjects, and uh, I had no idea about going into uh, the research of this book, which which obviously helped make the research a lot of fun and also you know deep dive. Uh, but yes, during uh, before during the I guess the nineteen tens, nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. Um, uh, major cities passed, uh, had on their books, ugly laws, quote unquote, ugly laws that prohibited people with uh, gross physical disability to, you know, be out and about. Uh, It was, as you say, very jarring to read about that and to know that, you know, this country uh, supported that. Um, Having said that, it was sort of during the, that time, you know, eugenics was around. And so that was sort of tied into that. Uh, there was, I read about a very, very famous Supreme Court where they basically said sterilization of people who, you know, with low intellectual disability, you know, with intellectual disabilities was, was valid. And that, that's the Supreme, you know, our Supreme Court. Um, so to, as for paraplegics, so the ones who did survive, they were basically in, placed in two uh, places, which was, one was in inst- institutions um, where you basically never saw them again. Um, and those families uh, who were wealthy enough or had the wherewithal to support someone in a wheelchair, that would be the other place. And it, Again, something I didn't know about the, the wheelchair technology, and I'm putting technology in air quotes as we speak. It was not. There was not uh, wheelchairs in that era were basically lazy boy chairs, sort of on rickety wheels. So, meaning there was no mobility. Uh, somebody in a wheelchair couldn't just, you know, sort of take off and do some errands or, or, or whatever. Uh, they were pretty much static, and so the visibility of people with paraplegic was was virtually nil. Right. Um, you tell the you tell the story of, of paraplegics and and certainly of World War Two and, and those that came back uh, paraplegics from the war through the lens of three individuals. Um, you mentioned Fessenmeyer before. Uh, I wonder how you landed on those three individuals, those three individuals, why did you choose to tell their stories? Yeah, uh, it was, uh, I, well, let me start over. It was a little difficult initially to find, uh, these veterans. Um, and so that was the first challenge to, to find someone, first of all, who was alive and there was only, one or two that I did find, including Gene Fessenmeyer. So I was very fortunate to, to have him. Um, and what I wanted to display a little bit was different types of experiences in the war. In other words, so Gene Fessenmeyer is a young high school kid who joins the Marines right the day after his high school graduation late in the war. 
um, and he is sent to the Pacific. He told me actually that he was going to be cannon fodder. He was being trained for the invasion of the home islands of Japan if it were to come to that. In other words, President Truman, of course, decided to drop the atomic bombs. So we didn't, we, the United States and allies did not have to invade the home islands of Japan. But if that was going to happen, Gene was going to be, you know, in the front and, and as he said, probably would die. Uh, the last big battle in, of the Pacific theater was Okinawa. That's where Gene was wounded. So I, I wanted to have somebody in the Pacific theater. Uh, Stan Dan Adele, um, he's uh, engaged in the Battle of the Bulge in Europe. So sort of the last great battle, um, at least uh, between U.S. and allies and Germany. And so I wanted to get sort of that flavor of the war um, as well. And, and then John Winterholler, Johnny Winterholler, the third individual, I just thought he was a compelling story for two reasons. First of all, he was an amazing athlete at the University of Wyoming, uh, possibly could have been a, you know, a major league baseball player uh, at the time if, if the war hadn't interrupted. Uh, he had to serve in the military. And, and in fact, um, he was serving because he was an ROTC. Uh, he was in the Philippines before uh, Pearl Harbor, so even before the war started. Uh, but the other element of, of Johnny Winterhall's story that I thought was fascinating was how he came to be a paraplegic, and that was as a prisoner of war uh, um, in the Philippines. And again, this was something I really had, had known so little about. Um, and found it just utterly fascinating. And, uh, and, and Johnny survived that, that unbelievable, cruel and torturous uh, uh, incidences. Um, but unfortunately, because of lack of nutrition and because of lack of medical care, that's how he lost the, the use of his legs. So I thought those would sort of give a, uh, you know, a, a well-rounded view of how some of the estimated 2,500 or so U.S. veterans who returned home uh, as paralyzed veterans, I thought this would be a, a well-rounded way to, to, to present their experience. Yeah, I think it, it certainly did capture it well. Um, in, a, in addition to the, you know, the characters you mentioned, um, some of the characters in the book that I found to be fascinating were uh, – the groundbreaking doctors who really revolutionized the way that, um, uh, well, let's say the, the rehabilitative process for um, paraplegics and what was possible uh, for them. And, you know, guys like um, Bors and Nugent and Gutman. And what I found fascinating about it was they, they all seemed to have similar personality traits. Um, they were very stubborn, straightforward, demanding. Um, they offered an approach uh, that you could, I guess, call tough love to their patients. Uh, do you think there's a reason that, that those type of guys ended up being in, in those roles? That's a great question. And you're right. Uh, that, that was sort of the common, the common characteristics. Uh, st uh, st <laughs> stubborn and demanding. <laughs> 
And I, I, I think they needed those traits um, to succeed uh, on, on sort of two levels. Um, and maybe I didn't go into this a ton in the book, but um, because these treatments of the treatment of paraplegia after the war, uh, you know, and among the veterans was so, you know, revolutionary, innovative, different, um, they had to, these doctors had to battle um, both the, on one side, sort of the VA and the administration that would be in the U.S. and, and Dr. Goodman in England, you know, having to deal with the, the British system over there. Um, and on the other hand, they had to get their, these, these patients, these young men who have just suffered, you know, the most, one of the most debilitating injuries that you can imagine and yet survive, uh, they, they had to deal with them at the same time. So it, it was sort of this two-fisted approach. One is sort of, on the one hand, to get the administration to, to buy into your system and also to keep them at arm's length so that they don't interfere with what you're doing. And on the other hand, show the veterans this, there is life after paraplegia. And, and I think that was a big, huge hurdle. And again, you know, sort of put yourself in their shoes. These young men, they're in their 20s, let's say. Um, maybe some of them are married. You know, they come back to a world where this has never been a, there's never been a significant cohort of young men who, who have survived paraplegia. What's, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to be able to have a job? Are they going to be able to have a family, have sex again, that sort of thing? I mean, these are some, um, you know, existential questions. How will they fit into this society? You know, there were no curb cutouts. There were no, there was no handicap parking, that sort of thing. Um, you know, ignorance sort of ruled in those times. Um, and, and just on a speculative level, um, I think all three, all those three guys you mentioned, Goodman, uh, Bors, and Nugent, Nugent, of course, being more of an academia, not, not a physician, I think they all considered themselves outsiders um, in, in, in the society that they were in. Uh, certainly Goodman, you know, Ludwig Goodman, you know, uh, uh, born in Germany as a, as a German Jew, and he escaped the Nazis in the, in the late 30s and ended up in England, he was a complete out, outsider. He really had to learn English. And, and, and then, you know, as a prominent neurosurgeon in Germany, adjust to a new normal himself. So he was always an outsider. Uh, Ernest Bohrs, also from the old country who immigrated to the United States, and he too had to deal with you know, he's a foreigner and that sort of thing. Um, and then Tim Nugent um, at the University of Illinois in, at Urbana-Champaign, he really had to deal with, uh, you know, here he is in the Midwest and there's complete ignorance about how can people with paraplegia become college students. And so he had to take on the administration with that and, and he succeeded. And then he's somebody who really takes, um, as, you know, the recreation wheelchair basketball. He helps take it from sort of this closed uh, circuit in the veterans community and 
takes it outside to the outside world and helps spread wheelchair basketball around. Right. I, you know, I, I really, um, as David describes in the book, it's just fascinating how basketball became integral to the rehabilitative process for so many of these paraplegics. Um, David, why do you think basketball specifically was the sport that was uh, conducive to that type of physical, really, and mental therapy? Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me because on, on that sort of first glance, you know, people in wheelchair and basketball doesn't seem to, you know, match. Um, you know, height is so valued in, in, in basketball and obviously the when we look at uh, basketball, it's it's men, men and women and youth running up and down the court. Okay, that's what you see. On the other hand, on a very practical level, it worked great with wheelchairs, and these were newfangled wheelchairs called Everston Jennings. Um, they were sort of the first modern wheelchairs, and think about it: it's a flat surface, it's a smooth surface. And so you can actually, once you sort of become adept at uh, moving around in a wheelchair, m- meaning m- going up and down the court and being able to play some defense and uh, handle the wheels and manipulate all of that, uh, while also keeping your attention on the ball and, and so forth, um, the surface and the area is big enough, the surface is smooth enough and the area is big enough to accommodate 10 wheelchair athletes. So that made sense. There was some difficulty initially of, you know, do we lower the rim from 10 feet, uh, the height? And to their credit, apparently, the veteran said, no, we want to keep it up there. Um, and it is a challenge. I've, I've sat in a wheelchair myself and tried to, you know, and tried to play a little bit a few times. And it's, it's a challenge to get the ball up there. And that last part is sort of speaks to the rehabilitation aspect of this. And, you know, can't emphasize enough that in the beginning, this was all about rehabilitation. It wasn't about necessarily the creation of a new sport that's, you know, going to become, uh, you know, an event in the Paralympics. This was about rehabilitation. And think about what you need, the best, uh, uh, rehabilitation efforts for someone with paraplegia is to strengthen the chest, to strengthen the arms and and neck and shoulder. Those are the cru- those are crucial muscles that you need to get around and to do your everyday activities uh, beyond just wheelchair basketball. And so, wheelchair basketball, you know, the act of passing, the act of shooting, uh, moving your wheelchair around, that sort of thing. It takes a lot of coordination and a lot of strength and flexibility of those muscles. And so it was, in that sense, it was a really good fit. So Bob Reinerson, am I pronouncing that right? Reiner, mm-hmm. Reinerson? Mm-hmm. Bob Reinerson, um, I guess, was really, you know, has been referred to as the father of wheelchair basketball. And he, he wrote the original 13 rules of wheelchair basketball. Um, I know Dr. Naismith's original rules of, of basketball were bought at auction a few years ago and now reside <laughs> at the University of Kansas. Do we know where Reinerson's <laughs> rules are? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, 
and I, uh, I, I sort of shout out to, to Bob Wright Nearson, who passed away some time ago. Uh, this was a gentleman who was working at the VA right after the war. He was the one who uh, sort of coalesced the, the veterans into playing organized basketball. In other words, some of the VA hospitals, there, there was basketball going on, but it wasn't organized. He was a, he was a coach's son. And I think it really uh, struck him that this is this sport has this is a sport that has potential, but we've we've got to rein in a little of sort of this you know uh, bedlam of there were some teams that just would just run up and down the court. I'm saying run run up and down the court in their wheelchairs. Uh, he instigated some rules, you know, a couple of pushes on the wheelchair, and then you've got to pass the ball or dribble or shoot things like that. And, you know, fouls and where do you take the foul shot at the, at the foul line or, or whatever. What about three seconds? And of course this is before the 24 second clock. So we didn't have to worry about that back then. Uh, but, but yeah, Rainierson is, is the first to do that. Uh, so you're asking about where are the rules? I, I will tell you this. And again, as a as a researcher and a writer, and I think you and the audience will understand and appreciate this. Thankfully, Bob Rainierson kept so much paperwork <laughs> from those early days at Birmingham Hospital, VA Hospital in Van Nuys, California. And thankfully, his family kept that. So I don't know if we have the original typeset rules, but there are those rules. Uh, Let's just say the first published account of those rules are still are available. They have them, and uh, it it again a, a, as a researcher and a historian of sorts and a writer. I, I think you're the audience. I mean, to to go back and see the original newsletters from the Birmingham VA hospitals. We're talking about the newsletter that the that the man the patients created. You know, it's just fascinating to, to handle that, to look at that, and to see all that was going on in their lives um, as it related to rehabilitation. And here is this one nugget, which is wheelchair basketball, and they sort of took that on the road and, uh, you know, sort of the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, as, as you say, they took it on the road. Um, but as you describe in the book, it wasn't that simple, right, to just uh... – so you have your first teams, they start up, but then they look for competition. They want to play other other teams in wheelchairs. And um, of course, early on, as you say in the book, it, it was it was often uh, the, the wheelchair basketball players would play against um, able-bodied people who borrowed wheelchairs and played in the wheelchairs. But that wasn't really fair competition because however athletic or able-bodied those people were, it's, it's a different game. It's a different sport to play in a wheelchair and to maneuver in a wheelchair. So of course they, they looked for a competition uh, against other teams that were paraplegic or wheelchair bound for whatever reason. Um, but that was easier said than done. Can you talk about a little about the, the logistics that went into some of these cross country matchups or tournaments? Yeah, it's and again something I knew absolutely nothing about going in, and and you know we we've we've talked here about uh, 
the unique aspect of paraplegia in, in history and here are these men surviving. Well, let's take it to the next level. Well, how do they get in an airplane? You know, question mark. That's, that's never happened before, right? Or if it has, it was only related to the war. Well, how do you, how do you transport a team of 10, 12, 14 uh, paralyzed veterans in their wheelchair? Uh, that was the initiative of Bob Ranierson and his crew in Van Nuys, California. As you, as you sort of set up uh, this question, um, these men in California didn't have competition except for able-bodied men using uh, wheelchairs, except for a short live team in, in Corona, California. So they decided to hit the road and play the other uh, paralyzed veterans at the other VA hospitals. And most of those were on the East Coast. Uh, there were two, three in New York City alone. There was one in Massachusetts. There was one in Memphis. They were sort of dotted seven or eight spinal cord injury units around the country. Um, the men, uh, they they were, uh, the California men were, were abetted, aided and abetted by journalists and celebrities because it's right by Hollywood. So you had, you know, Hedda Hopper, the gossip columnist. Uh, she sort of uh, became a cheerleader and they raised all this money uh, to, to charter a plane, to hire doctors and nurses. And the VA administration tried to stop them, just said, you do not have permission to go on this trip. This is, we're talking about the first trip in 19, was it 47, 48, uh, around that time. And uh, the men sort of looked around and looked at each other and just said, you know what, we're going on this trip. We're going to show the world uh, that we can, first of all, handle travel just on a logistical level and, we can, and we're going to be okay. Uh, but it really was, to their mind, it was a way of leaving the confines of the hospital engaging in friendly competition with other VA, with other veterans. And also, and this is, I think, becomes really super important for them. Um, they're going to show other, you know, people who have never seen paralyzed or paraplegics in a wheelchair performing pretty amazing athletic feats. And they're going to show the world that. And once they hit the road, you know, Boom. It was, you know, articles in every newspaper and magazine, you know, from popular mechanics to the daily worker to the cover of Newsweek magazine. Um, it, it was a little bit of a phenomenon. I mean, they play in Madison Square Garden before uh, 15,000 people. Um, that was two other VA hospital teams. But that's the effect of this travel is we're going to show the world uh, what we had. And as this thing became an annual event, as the boys from California, you know, got on the plane every spring, winter, spring, and would play the other teams, inevitably, they would stop in Washington, D.C., and they would lobby congressmen and women. They'd lobby, they'd stop in and see the president. You know, when Eisenhower was there, he greeted them. I mean, he's, he was the general during the war. These were his boys. And they would talk about uh, handicap, uh, jobs, uh, accessibility. And they were very, very successful as a lobbying group about uh, winning 
uh, accessible, uh, whether it was a house or a car, that would so that they could live their lives, live a quote-unquote normal life. And while they're doing this, um, of course, uh, Dr. Goodman is is doing his own thing on the other side of the pond, and he set up something called the Stoke Mandeville Games. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those games and how they eventually um, morphed into the Paralympics. Absolutely, he's he's a key element in the story, and and uh, you know, obviously, I focused here on the United States on the on the American version of what was going on. Goodman has has gotten a lot of, uh, and well deserved, by the way, a lot of uh, uh, praise. And so when the Olympics were in London in 2012, there, it was a big deal about Ludwig Goodman and and the Paralympics. Again, well-deserved. So, uh, you know, he basically took the same precepts that were going on here in the VA hospitals about rehabilitation, get the men up and moving, um, train them with vocational jobs, um, give them the tools they need to succeed in a, in a society that was not very uh, friendly to those in wheelchairs. And so he had his version going on. He was also an adept uh, promoter. He organized the first Stoke Mandeville Games, as you say, in 1948. And basically all it was was an archery competition between his patients and uh, other paralyzed veterans. And just on a side note, archery, sort of like basketball, is it, you can see it's a good exercise for those in wheelchairs because it exercises the chest and the shoulders and the neck and so forth. Um, so what does Goodman do when he organizes that first Stoke Mandeville Games? He, he organizes it on the same day as the opening ceremony of the 1948 London Olympics, which was the first Olympics after the war. Actually, the first Olympics since uh, Hitler's Games in uh, Berlin in 1936. And, I, you know, what, what I came to find out about Goodman was he he saw almost from the very, very beginning, he tried to link uh, what became the Paralympics uh, with the Olympic Games. And that word, the Paralympics, comes about in before there really is even a Paralympics. Uh, we're talking in 1952, 53, 54, the local newspaper calls them the Paralympics, as in, you know, paralyzed or paraplegia and Olympics. And he went out of his way to link uh, everything, whether it was um, the uh, opening ceremonies and marches, you know, the nations marching in together, that sort of thing. He was very cognizant and a, and a very smart self-promoter, always was writing about it, would send all the material to Olympic IOC members. Um, and really, <clears throat> all those years he was getting these Stoke Mandeville games, it was, in a sense, he was waiting for the Americans team, a, a, a team of Americans to come because he knew, I mean, let's face it, at that time, in the early 50s, America, you know, is one of the two superpowers along with the USSR, but also um, they have a great uh, development of sports for those with disability, in particular, wheelchair basketball. 
So finally, the Americans come in 1955, and that's sort of the spark uh, to take the Stoke Mandible games even bigger. And then officially, they begin, most people officially say the Paralympics begin in 1960 in Rome. After the Olympics are done in, in Rome, uh, you have a small event organized by Goodman and local organizers in Italy. Um, and of course, a very small American team, but that's officially that first uh, Paralympics in 1960. Um, David, I have one last question for you, and I'll get you out of here. But uh, let me just say one more time um, I'm talking to David Davis. Again, his book is called Wheels of Courage How Paralyzed Veterans from World War II Invented Wheelchair Sports fought for disability rights, and inspired a nation. Um, David, this is a question I like to ask all of my, um, all of my guests. What is your all-time favorite sports book? <laughs> one? I get one? That's it? <laughs> I, mean, you can, you can, I know it's a, I know it's a toughie. Uh, you can name uh, a few. Yeah, boy, it's a tough one, huh? Ah, uh, boy. I, I have to go, I, I, uh, maybe this is going to show my age and all that sort of thing. I, I, I maybe go by sport a, sports a little bit. Uh, you know, Boys of Summer and, and, the, and the books by Roger Angel for baseball. Uh, uh, A.J. Liebling for, for boxing writing. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not naming a book there. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Yeah. Gosh, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking at a stack full of books in, in, you know, a bookshelf in front of me and you, you've got right. me, uh, you've got me pinned here. I know you could probably <sighs> think about it all day. Yeah, I, exactly. Um, I don't know. Um, the Marcus Dupree book, uh, gosh. Yeah. That was it. that was the Marcus Dupree, the education of Marcus Dupree for football, mm-hmm. track and field. There was a great book, and I'm forgetting that. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the title. Uh, a great book, uh, the, the Mar- a Boston Marathon duel with uh, Alberta Salazar and and his his opponent, a slim book. I'm just forgetting the name, and I apologize. I will email it to you afterwards. Yeah, please. <laughs> And that one uh, really, it, it still to this day resonates. Um, just so, just so many. And I'm, if I, it, you know, first of all, I apologize. I once, once you ask questions, I get rambling, and I apologize to you and your <laughs> listeners. I apologize. <laughs> Way I should have said that in advance, but I, I that's, apologize. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> but, but I, I, and I why I get enthusiastic and, but also why I like to talk about other people's work um, is, I mean, we're, I mean, thankfully, look, you have a book coming out. There's some great writing coming out, but you know, sports books, literary sports books, however you want to call it. uh, It's a dying art in some ways. And I'm, I'm, I'm worried about that to some degree, you know, uh, the, you know, Penn, which is a great organization, they stopped doing their their best uh, sports book of the year, uh, which they've been doing for several years. 
you know, the best American sports writing anthology edited by Glenn Stout for all these years. They just published their last edition. And so I, I really, uh, I, I hope listeners and, and you and everybody, um, I, I hope we don't give up the ghost on this because I, I think, you know, we're sort of neglected a little bit. The sports writers were the, you know, the toy department. Uh, but I think the I think the best works out there really resonate and 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 tell a story that goes way beyond the playing fields. So I, I anyway I hope I I'm glad that you still exist <laughs> as a podcast because we need we need you and everybody uh, behind us. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I'll get off well, the soap. I'll get off the soapbox. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, you no, know, and I just want to say that you know. For our listeners, Wheels of Courage is a great example of of what David was talking about. Uh, you know, sports books—they the best ones uh, typically are are about so much more than sports, right? And Wheels of Courage is it's uh, it's a book about sports. It's a book about wheelchair basketball, but it's um, incredibly informative about uh, you know American history and World War II and. Uh, disabilities in general and, and the way that we view and treat disabilities. Um, and uh, I, I found it to be a great read. It's, as I said, informative, uh, eye-opening at times, and most importantly, it's very inspiring. So David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was really a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Paul. Really appreciate it. Really. All right. Take care.